Please remain standing for the gospel lesson from Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Hear now the gospel of the Lord. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. The word of the Lord. Praise God. Amen. Please be seated. Many of you may know that Presbyterians have a thing we call the Book of Church Order, often referred to by the acronym, the BCO. It's sort of a manual for practices, policies, discipline, government, uh, the way the church is regulated at, at a denomination-wide level. That's one of them right there. That's a BCO, a Book of Church Order. And our Book of Church Order requires a sermon on the nature of the offices in the church whenever, as we are doing today, an ordination is performed. And so we will look at the New Testament reading today from 1 Timothy chapter 3, the New Testament text. Now when it comes to this matter of officers, it's a lot like the case is with other biblical doctrines. There are ditches and dangers to be avoided on all sides. Both sides, many sides, all sides of the truth. Um, I'm fond of this uh, well-known quotation of G.K. Chesterton's where he talks about trying to uphold the truth in the midst of a sea of errors. And he, he speaks about the truth as not being boring. He speaks of it as the romance of orthodoxy. And he speaks of the errors and the fads as being tedious and boring. And he, and he says this. He says, It is always simple to fall. There are an infinity of angles at which one falls. Only one at which one stands. To have fallen into any of the fads, from Gnosticism to Christian science, would indeed have been obvious and tame. But to have avoided them all has been one whirling adventure. And in my vision, the heavenly chariot flies thundering through the ages, the dull heresies sprawling and prostrate, the wild truth reeling but erect. That's the church's uh, journey, her pilgrimage in history. Uh, and so it's not different when it comes to the question of ordained office and church leaders. We have traditions which overemphasizing the priesthood of all believers, call them democratic traditions, perhaps in reaction, legitimate reaction to abusive and domineering leaders. They see virtually no unique role at all for ordained public office in the church. And then we have traditions on the other end which lodge the very existence, the very being of the church and the officers. No properly ordained bishop, no church. 
But the Reformed tradition has always taken a mediating position here, and I think a biblical one. We've always said that the basic reality of the church consists in those who confess the faith together with their children. And this is an important affirmation. It's in our confessional documents. It means that the visible church can, and indeed it has, existed without publicly ordained officers. And yet, the offices prescribed in Scripture are necessary for the well-being, for the good order, for the perfecting of the church. The way the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it is, unto this visible Catholic or universal church, that is, those who profess the faith and their children, unto that church, God has given the ministry for its edification. And so this means that we are neither clericalists, that is, people who define the church in in terms of the clergy. We're not clericalists. But we're not anti-clericalists, people who see the church as a purely democratic collection of people. The church does, in fact, have divinely given and apostolically authorized officers, and they're necessary for her health and well-being. And so Paul here in 1 Timothy 3, he, he charges Timothy on the question of pastoral oversight for the church at Ephesus, which is where Timothy is. And so we'll look at this under its two natural headings, elders in verses 1 through 7 and deacons in verses 8 through 13. So first elders, uh, the text begins with a little proverb. These are called faithful sayings in in the, uh, the letters of Paul to Timothy and Titus. Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or sets his heart on being an overseer in some translations, he desires a noble task. Now, of course, there are all sorts of bad reasons for becoming an officer in the church. Selfish ambition is always with us. People seek leadership for power or for control or for prestige or because they like being in the inner circle or for any number of disordered reasons. I can remember when I was first thinking about the ministry, I was a much younger man and I was sitting in the office of one of the grand, old, experienced ministers in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in San Antonio, Texas one day. And as I told him of my aspirations, then tentative aspirations, he offered me only one piece of very blunt advice. He said, if you can possibly stay out of the ministry, stay out. (laughs) I was tempted to take it personal, but I think I heard he gave everyone that that advice. Uh, Now, I must tell you, that is actually a common piece of advice, which is given to young men aspiring to the ministry in our circles. But it's, it's not a piece of advice I fully agree with. It's overstated, but not by much. He's making a very valid point. If you're free to go be an engineer or this, and you can do it in good conscience, then stay out of the ministry. The ministry's difficult. People will criticize you. It's full of heartbreaking challenges. It's full of things that are invisible to anybody but you and God. 
After all, I remember he reminded me, he said, the Apostle Paul said, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. That is, the Apostle pronounces a curse on himself if he doesn't go into the ministry. So Paul could not have chosen to be only a full-time tent maker and, and been obedient to his calling. He had to go into the ministry. And I think that's the crucial thing he was trying to get across to me. Make sure you're called to the task. And to do that, you have to be able to see the thing properly in all of its fullness with your eyes wide open. Don't romanticize the calling. Don't romanticize the calling. And a part of that calling, as the text indicates, is desire. Aspiration. So, selfish ambition aside, there's a legitimate, godly desire for public office in the church. That should be there. Desire is not sufficient to establish that one is called, but it is necessary. Without this subjective sense in a person's heart, the call of God is absent. But notice, it's not just the subjective desire. Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy's Paul's delegate. And Timothy is given a number of other qualities in this letter. And it's clear that Timothy has authority to determine if they are present in a man's life. Right? Paul doesn't write to Timothy and say, if any man comes up to you and tells you that he meets all this, these criteria, ordain him. He says to Timothy, no, if men desire this office and you think they meet this criteria, then you can ordain them. And that means a man's subjective desires have to be matched by an objective evaluation from the existing leadership of the church. It simply won't do for men to go around saying, I'm called. Because that's not what Paul does here. And so where you have this desire, and then you have this public approval of the church and its ministry, there and only there you have a man called to office in the church. This has been the position of the Christian church from the beginning, from this letter. So one can and should seek and desire the office because the text says it's a noble task. In spite of its pitfalls and perils, it's a worthy, or the word here means it's a beautiful task. And the office itself in view here is called the office of overseer. Overseer is the word episkopos, as in the Episcopal Church, the overseer church. In English, it means bishop. And you may think, well, we don't seem to have bishops. There's a reason for this. In the New Testament, bishops and elders. Now, the word for elder in the New Testament is presbyteros, Presbyterian church. Episcopos, bishop, Presbyterian elder. 
But the words are used interchangeably, and they're used for the same office in the New Testament. Right, later in this epistle, Paul will refer to the elders, and he clearly means the same people who he here calls overseers. So Paul, there, there are two terms for the same office. Paul uses them interchangeably. He does this in Titus 1. He does it in 1 Peter 5. He does it in Acts 20. It's not like he just does this once. So elders are bishops. Bishops are elders. And this means there's not three offices in the church. Bishops, priests, deacons. Or bishops, elders, deacons. There's two offices. Elder, overseers, deacons. Two offices. And it's important for us to see this. And know also that this is not a novelty in the church. This is simply a continuation of the office of elder in ancient Israel. Israel's elders ruled in the synagogues. They ruled over tribes and clans. They governed life judicially at the city gates. The New Testament church picks up this function. It's always good to be a Presbyterian on a day like this. <laughs> so in verse 2, Paul gives a summary qualification, sort of summarizes. It's like a heading for overseers. He says, they must be above reproach. Well, this would seem to eliminate almost everybody at the outset. But that's clearly not what's intended by Paul. Paul does not mean that the overseer must be faultless. What is in view here and throughout this list is the basic, observable, public character of a man in other words, Paul's concerned about one's reputation, their basic reputation. You can see this if you look in verse 7. He returns to this question of reputation. He says he must have a good reputation with outsiders. What the people you work with think about your character matters. Because the world is watching the church and her leaders, the church's leaders, should, as much as it's in their power, win their respect. Otherwise, verse 7 says, he would fall into disgrace. He'd bring ridicule, possibly slander on the gospel. He'd be open, Paul says, to the snares of the devil. The church faces demonic opposition, and the reputation of its leaders must not provide an occasion for the accuser of the brethren. This is really a fascinating point by Paul. Do you realize what he does here? He gives outsiders, unbelievers, pagans, veto power over who can be an officer in the church. That's what he's doing. He says you have to have a good reputation with outsiders. It's, it's one thing for an unbelieving outsider to oppose your Christian conviction or your adherence to the gospel. It's another thing for outsiders to know that a man is morally defective or, or not trustworthy. Even unbelievers, Paul says, can recognize a knave or a rogue. And so he says, it matters what your unbelieving co-workers and friends and neighbors think about you. And next, Paul moves to the, uh, to the man's marriage. He is to be the husband of one wife. 
This little phrase, believe it or not, has a long and tangled history. I'll say a couple of things about it. First, it is not meant to exclude single men from the eldership. It just assumes, in good Hebrew fashion, that they will normally be married. Celibacy, for all of its high-sounding justifications, is a departure from the apostolic practice. I just read an essay by a a very learned uh, Catholic scholar a week or so ago arguing for a robust case for the celibate priesthood. And there's a case to be made. And in some quarters, the case is compelling. But we have to come back to this text and realize that it is not the apostolic practice. Secondly, this phrase, the husband of one wife, while it obviously excludes polygamy, it is not principally directed against polygamy. Polygamy was not a problem in the early church. Third, some, including some in the early church, see this text as precluding divorced men or men whose wives had died and had subsequently remarried from the eldership. But that view is almost certainly wrong. Because like the other qualities here, this is a present tense, current qualification. The overseer must be present tense, above reproach, etc. Think of it this way. None of the other attributes in the list, if they were absent earlier in life, serve as a present disqualification. Right? No one says, well, 25 years ago the man wasn't prudent. Therefore, he can't be an elder. Or 25 years ago, he wasn't reverent or dignified. Therefore, he can't be an elder. Or his children were out of control 14 years ago. Therefore, he can't be an elder. Well, the same approach should be taken to this text. The phrase simply means that the elder's to be a one-woman man. He lives in fidelity to his marriage vows. He doesn't flirt. He doesn't dally in any shape or form. He has one wife. He's faithful to her. And next, Paul turns to the man's temperament. And here the main point is the man has to have a certain healthy measure of self-mastery. He's to be sober-minded, that is, clear-headed, temperate, and self-controlled. They're listed among the fruits of the Spirit. All of these virtues are wrought by grace. He who rules his spirit, Proverbs says, is mightier than one who captures a city. If you can't rule yourself, you cannot rule the people of God. And so an erratic intemperance is deadly in a leader. Sobriety is essential. And respectable, which which is the next word in the list, speaks of comporting oneself with dignity, especially in interactions with other people. And this means that leaders have to respect the opinions and the viewpoints of others, or else they become little tyrants. Next, the, uh, the apostle turns to the man's practical ministry. He is to be hospitable. The word hospitable means to be a lover of strangers. It starts with knowing everybody's name. 
Starts with knowing a little bit about people, knowing something about their bio. Like everything else in the list, this word is a quality that's enjoined on all Christians. Leaders are to reflect the welcoming hospitality of God in Christ. The theological underpinnings of hospitality are profound. Right? Because when we were strangers and aliens, God has taken us into his house. God is the hospitable God. And so leaders are to open their homes to others with some regularity. They must also be able to teach, the text says. This is one item which is not in the, the deacon's list. And it's a basic function of the office. Elders know and can communicate the faith. The faith. Not their own opinions, but the public confession of the church. As you go down this list, the, the apostle moves then to the, what we might call the man's temperance. Not his temperament. We just looked at his temperament. But now his temperance. He's not to be a drunkard, the text says. Drinking is not forbidden, but drunkenness surely is. In the Old Testament, kings and priests were not to drink while they were on duty, while they were at the temple. It's like drinking and driving. Drinking and teaching is a very bad idea. Drunkenness is forbidden. King, a king couldn't drink, lest, or a judge couldn't drink in Israel, Proverbs says, lest they pervert justice. So moderation. He's not to be violent, the text says, but gentle. And violent here literally means given to blows. So a recent fistfight is not a good sign for an elder candidate. And, and, and the broader idea, I mean, literally the, the word is, it's that word, but the broader idea is that he's not to be combative and pugnacious. Right? Combative and pugnacious elders are very bad for the church. He must be gentle, reasonable, open to persuasion, willing to yield. This is essential because the eldership is a collegial, plural, co-equal deal. He's not to be, the text says, quarrelsome. Paul says in 2 Timothy, he says, any fool can quarrel. Of course, quarrelsome people don't see themselves as quarrelsome. They see themselves as defenders of the flag, guardians of all that is right and true and just in the world. So quarrelsomeness is a detriment because the leader's patience will be tested. And so he must cherish the peace of the church. He should not be a lover of money, Paul says, because leadership entails overseeing and handling money. And so integrity here is absolutely essential. And then he addresses the elder's household. And since the church is God's household, one's own household is a kind of nursery, a kind of training ground for leadership in the church. He must, as a steward, manage his own household well, the text says. He must see that his children obey him with proper respect. 
Again, it's easy to take these passages and sort of romanticize them into the uh, idyllic, perfect, sort of Norman Rockwell-ish Christian family. But that's not the requirement here. No, no one has a perfect anything. But in general, there should be a, a reasonable, substantial kind of health here. Children within the household are primarily what's in view here. And proper respect means dignity. And it probably refers not to the children's attitude, but to the father's attitude toward the children. That is, the father should see that his children obey him in a dignified manner. He should not be using coercion or intimidation or threats to control his children. A grave failure here does disqualify one from leadership. As verse 5 says, if someone does not know how to manage his own family, how will he care for God's church? And so the elder lives in two households. And the state of the one tells us a lot about the fitness to rule in the other. Finally, in verse 6, he must be mature. And, th and th this really means there's no, there's no shortcuts here. There's no fast paths to maturity. It takes time. We learn slow. Experience is a great, great teacher. But she does take her time. And so the, the elder must not be a recent convert. That rapid advancement, especially in church settings, is never a good thing. And it very often leads to pride. The text says he may become conceited or puffed up. The word means he has a swollen head. His head is so swollen that it clouds his perception. He's living in some sort of self-centered fantasy world. And this could lead, the text says, to incurring the same punishment that fell on the devil himself. What happened to the devil? He was swollen with pride. He met the judgment of God. You don't want to do that to a man in the church. So just a, quickly now, I want to look at the deacons. Many of these qualities are identical or nearly so. The word for deacon is the basic word in, used in the New Testament for every kind of service. The root idea is tied to the notion of waiting on tables. And Jesus dignifies this word which, of course, in a general way applies to all of us, all Christians, when he says this, who is greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves at table? Is it not the one who, it is not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves. When Jesus says that, the word for serves that he uses means to deacon. To deacon. So we could say this, the Son of Man came not to be deaconed, but to deacon. It's the exact same terminology. And this lends an enormous dignity to Christian service in general, but especially to the office of deacon. There are to be men worthy of respect. The text says dignified, that means serious Sincere means not double-tongued, but straightforward in their speech. Like the elders, they're not to be addicted to or indulging in much wine, nor greedy for gain. 
They don't have to be able to teach, but the text says they have to hold to the mystery, the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They have to profess the apostolic faith without guile or without hesitation. The text speaks of their being tested before they're being employed, but no specific test is listed. So what's the point? The point is the same situation as with the elders. They should be screened, they should be proven, they should be known quantities. Like the elders, he's to be the husband of one wife, managing their children in their own households well. And finally, deacons who serve well are said in verse 13 to gain a good standing for themselves and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is a remarkable statement. It's not even said of elders. There's a kind of confidence that comes from serving well in the diaconate because one is imitating the great servant. And this standing and this confidence is probably both before God and man. And so faithful deacons are to be esteemed highly by the community because they are surely esteemed highly by the Lord who came in the form of a deacon. So, step back a little bit. What we have here for both elders and deacons is a standard which, while it is high, it is not unrealistic. It is not a demand for perfection. You've probably noticed, as we've gone through the list, these are simply the traits that are to be found among all faithful Christians. There are no exemptions from any of these traits if you're not an officer. Well, I'm not an officer, so I guess I don't have to be gentle. These are just Christian qualities. They are to be found among all Christian people, but they are required of leaders. It is, of course, always a judgment call. A lot of it depends on context and the direction of a man's life. No one is looking for perfection, but we are looking for a substantial evidence of this general tenor. So, one last word about these offices. The high dignity and the honor of these offices is not something which comes from the church. It's not something which even comes from the political needs that the church has to be governed, which it does. It flows ultimately and primarily because of these offices' relation to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who, who occupies, who holds, who possesses in himself all the offices of the church. This is a very key point. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. There's no office in the church which Jesus delegates in such a way that he doesn't hold it anymore or exercise it immediately. He is, as Peter puts it, the great or the chief shepherd and bishop, overseer of our souls. And to him all the under-shepherds will give an account. And from him at his appearing all the faithful elders will receive, Peter says, an unfading crown of glory. Ministry, like everything else, is oriented to the end. 
Jesus is the great bishop of the church, the great shepherd, the great elder overseer, and he is the servant, the deacon of deacons, who came not to be served but to give his life a ransom for many. And before him, faithful deacons stand with great confidence because they reflect him. It is this one, now ascended, who still remains the Lord Bishop, the servant deacon of the church. And it's through his spirit, the spirit of the ascended Christ, that he furnishes the church with men to carry on the holy ministry in his name. The men we come to ordain and install today are gifts of the ascended Jesus to his church. So let us pray that the great bishop deacon would uphold Westminster's leaders, especially those ordained and installed today, and that he would furnish her with gifted servants into the future, that this expression of the household of God might prosper under his hand. Amen.